And now a word from one of our Bible Live sponsors. Our company is so proud and excited to sponsor the Bible Live. As a businessman, I have to make decisions every day about how to best invest time, personnel, and resources for the best return and results. The scriptures say there are two things on earth that will last forever, God's word and the souls of people. It's my hope that you, your family, your church, and perhaps even your business will pray about giving a tax-deductible donation to the Bible Live at this time. Together, let's expand this historic broadcast of the scriptures to other cities across our nation, a sound investment for both time and eternity. You can donate by credit card at the Bible Live website www.thebiblelive.com or mail your check for the Bible Live to P.O. Box 18888. That's P.O. Box 18888, San Antonio, Texas 78218. Welcome to the Bible Live Quiz Hour. It's time to test and grow your knowledge of the Bible. The entire Bible every year. On Sunday nights at 9, join us here for the Bible Live Quiz Hour. So people ask questions from the Bible Live leads. You call in with the correct answers, and you win. It's just that simple. So get out your Bible, put on your thinking cap, and hit that speed dial. Because here's the host of the Bible Live. Your Apache Indian scout through the book of books, Soapy Dollar. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Whether you're in your car or out in the garage tooling around or just there in the house relaxing, getting ready for a night's rest, we are so glad you are along with us for The Bible Live here on this great station. Now, we we have been making our way through the Bible every year for, wow, somewhere around 20 years now. We've been going through the Scriptures and uh, letting you hear the scriptures on many of those years. Right now, we're moving our Bible reading programs to podcast format so that you can hear them there. I'm uh, not ready yet to point you right to the po- po- podcast and get you involved in uh, listening with us. We've still got a few more things to negotiate and work out, but we are making our way through the Bible. We have finished reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and Joshua, Judges, and the little book of Ruth. And in the Hebrew, the Tanakh, the Old Testament scriptures, we are ready now to move into the uh, books of history. Uh, well, we've, we've already been that with the book of jo- uh, Joshua and Judges, Ruth. Uh, but we're going to move in now uh, to the books of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. And so we're going to be covering a, a lot of years and decades, centuries, of wonderful stories of, of God continuing to work and develop the redemptive plan and reveal himself to humanity and maintain a record and a, and a witness of himself through this people group we call in the Old Testament the, the children of Israel. Remember uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob whose name was changed to Israel, and then uh, his sons, their family, went down into Egypt. Uh, actually, it was Joshua. Uh, I'm sorry, Joseph. Joseph used to go down into Egypt to prepare the way to preserve the nation from dying in a famine. And for, so they were there for over 400 years, as had been predicted uh, back in the book of Genesis uh, to Abraham himself. 
uh, we had seen that prediction that they would be there a great number of years, and then God would bring them out. And we we know now from history that God used this man named Moshe, this man we know as Moses, to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt and uh, on up into that promised land that God had promised to Abraham uh, centuries before. So uh, we, we're following that, that story of redemption, that story of God's revelation of himself in the keeping and the guarding of a, of a witness to himself, to the uh, nations and the people of the whole world. You've got to keep your eye on the world and not get too lost in the details of God's dealing, yes, with the people of Israel, but it was all for the sake of the world. It was all a part of the larger, greater redemptive plan of God for all of humanity. And so we'll get back to that uh, after the, in this coming week, actually. We're going to finish up uh, the Gospel of Luke. We have uh, read already in the New Testament the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. Matthew was uh, written by a Jewish uh, tax collector that was a convert to follow Jesus of Nazareth, one of the disciples. And uh, he writes, uh, in general, his letter directed toward the people of Israel themselves and presenting uh, Jesus the Messiah and his claims to be the Messiah, the King of Israel. And so Matthew has that perspective, basically the audience of the the people of Israel, the Jewish people. And then Mark comes along, Mark uh, uh, emphasizing the the um, the servant nature of Jesus. Uh, Matthew, of course, quotes from many. Matthew quotes from many of the Old Testament passages about the Messiah, the coming Savior, the coming King of Israel. Uh, Mark also, but he emphasizes and shows Jesus as a servant, one who came and uh, gave, poured his life out in benefit and in love for others. And so we see that aspect of the book of Mark. And then now we come to, now, of course, Matthew wrote from his knowledge of Christ, his personal knowledge of walking with him and being among his followers. Mark was uh, not one of the 12 disciples, but he was a, he wrote mainly under the influence of the memories of Peter. And so uh, Mark represents that uh, insight and that uh, perspective of Jesus. Now we come to the Gospel of Luke. Now, let me just say about these Gospels that they are like portraits of the Messiah. Uh, we, they're not in, in and of themselves. Uh, to, none of them were given as the idea that this is the exhaustive, actual um, memory, exact truth of every moment. Uh, of Jesus' life, each of them have a perspective. They have, uh, they are presenting their view and their experience with Jesus of Nazareth and his claim to be the Messiah. Now, Luke, we come to Luke. He is the only Gentile writer of the uh, New Testament. He writes. He is a, a physician, a doctor. Uh, he. Uh, emphasizes the humanity, the the human nature of Christ, the Messiah, his coming. Uh, The word became flesh, as the Gospel of John tells us. Luke talks about his humanity and his coming uh, when he gives his um, picture of Jesus' ancestry. Uh, Matthew, of course, traced Jesus' ancestry back to David. Uh, the king uh, that was understood that the Messiah would come through the the Davidic lineage, the royal lineage of David. 
King David. Now, um, Luke traces the ancestry of Jesus all the way back to Adam, all the way back to creation, showing his linkage for all of humanity uh, and uh, it emphasizes his the human nature uh, of Jesus. Now, we can talk about that through the evening. We've got lots of things I'd like to get into, actually, into the the heart of the Gospel of Luke. We've, we often spend a lot of time kind of given the big picture, the big parameter uh, of like a Hebrew Scriptures or the New Testament. But tonight, let's get into the Gospel of Luke. Last week, we covered the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, answering questions and kind of remarking on some of the main features of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we started out, Luke, talking about uh, John the Baptist, his second cousin, uh, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, this Levite, a son of, of a Levite father and mother, and he is the one who is foretold in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament even, and uh, as we're identified by Jesus himself and the New Testament writers, that John was that uh, forerunner. He was the one that was going to come before the Messiah and prepare the way for the Messiah. And so we, we have that passage, that prediction in the Old Testament, and now we, we've, seen it, we've seen it carried out in the life of John the Baptist, who who prepared the people to receive the Messiah and talked to him about the, the kingdom of God is, is coming. And so then we saw the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, and uh, we, to um, all the way his, his birth, it, the, all of the features we know uh, identified in the, the unusual entry of this, un, this unique human being. Uh, we have once more... A, a human being um, created, not not coming through the natural birth cycle, the natural processes that were involved in the creation of Adam and Eve and the rest of the human race, but we see a new creation, uh, uh, one who, uh, uh, in the first for the first time, we see a human being who was a pre-incarnate uh, spirit, one who existed before but took on flesh and became a human being. Uh, we human beings, we are all part of the initial uh, creation act of God with Adam and Eve. All the genetic material for every human being who has ever lived was in the first couple, Adam and Eve. And so when they fell into sin, the whole race uh, in them, uh, the, we were all in Adam and Eve. The whole race fell under the consequences, the um, results of their uh, fall into sin, the fall of man. But now we have another man entering the human race, but not from, uh, not from necessarily entirely from the first creative act, uh, the the genetic material in the in the race of men. Yes, he was entirely and totally a human being, but he was a new creation. He was uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. Uh, the mother of Jesus. And we read about that in uh, Luke chapter 2, his unusual entry into uh, the race of humanity. And, and uh, Paul later on explains this. Jesus does as well. But Paul talks about in Adam all die in Christ now, the firstborn of the twiceborn. This is a, a, a redeemer uh, who comes to once again 
approaching the relationship with God the Father, a human being who is approaching the, the relationship with God the Father from the side of sinless innocence, and uh, just as Adam and Eve did. But they uh, failed the test of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the whole race of humanity fell under the consequence, the judgment of sin, because of their sin. Now another human being comes to run that gauntlet, to stand that test. Jesus came and lived as, as a man from the time he was a fertilized egg on the wall of Mary's womb to the day his death. Jesus was indeed entirely, totally a human being. As was prophesied all through the Old Testament scriptures, Genesis chapter 3, the first verbal testimony and, and prophecy of the Messiah, I will put enmity between you and the woman, God says to Satan, uh, uh, who manifests himself in the in the serpent in the Garden of Eden. He says, I'm going to put a conflict between you. You will wound his heel, but he will crush your head. And so destroy the works of Satan as he brought mankind into the consequences and judgment of sin. So all through the Old Testament now, we see these predictions about this Messiah, this Redeemer, this Savior, this hero, this uh, this uh, Redeemer that God is going to send, uh, a human being. He's not going to be an extraterrestrial. He's not going to be an animal. He's not going to be an angel. He's going to be a human being who would come and once again, confront that relationship with God from the side of sinless innocence. But in order to be our Redeemer, our Savior, he had to walk out a perfect life of faith and trust and submission, obedience to God the Father as a man. He couldn't call upon his unique uh, godly prerogatives and initiatives and authority and power as God. If he had of, he would have been eliminated from being our Savior. Uh, although he had every right to do, he had the power to do it, God, Jesus had to walk under the mantle, under the yoke, uh, the umbrella of faith and trust and submission to, to the God, the Father, who would enable him and guide him to carry out successfully the, the role, the task of being the perfect man of faith and trust and obedience, submission to the Father. And then he who knew no sin would become sin for our sakes and become that that definitive final sacrifice. John the Baptist, his cousin, sees him in John chapter 1 and says, Behold, folks, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was now all of the predictions and the verbal predictions, all the pictures, all the dramatized pictures of the Messiah, all the types of the Messiah that we see throughout the Hebrew Scriptures uh, in Moses and in, in Abraham and Isaac. Isaac is a type of Jesus who yielded, you know, his father was to sacrifice his son and, and so on. And all of these are types. They are pictures uh, of the Messiah and his work. We see that in the tabernacle. We see it in the temple. We see it in the priesthood. We see it in the vestments of the priest. And we see it in all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. The sacrificial system uh, was showing the seriousness of sin. The, the soul that sins, it shall die without the shedding of blood. There is no remission of sin. And all of those cows and goats and lambs that were 
sacrifice and all the other sacrifice were pictures of the definitive Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. So we have all of that preparation through centuries and centuries of predictions about the Messiah. Now in Luke, we see it come to pass. Chapter 2, chapter 3, we see the work of John as he prepares the way for Jesus. We see Jesus' baptism as he submits to his Levite cousin. He says, let all righteousness be done. He didn't go to the corrupt, paid for and bought priests in the in the temple of that era, uh, all of the corruption and all of the the uh, the compromise that existed in the Jewish nation of that era, uh, politically, socially, religiously, there was so much compromise and the buying and selling of the priesthood and so on. Jesus bypasses all of that and goes to a, a legitimate, true Levite. Uh, a godly Levite, who, and that's what he was supposed to do as he prepares and dedicates himself to his ministry and launches his ministry. And so John says, I should be, you should, ba- you should baptize me, not you, me, you. But Jesus says, no, all, so that all righteousness will be done. Uh, I, I need you to do that. You're the Levite. I'm, I'm following and obeying and trusting God's way and God's commands. And so uh, Jesus launches his ministry there. Um, Chapter 4, we see his temptation. We see him coming back and preaching and teaching in his hometown of Nazareth. Remember, he was born in Bethlehem, but then they had to flee Israel and go down into Egypt to flee from the uh, the slaughter of the innocents carried out under uh, Herod, who uh, killed all the infants of two years old and under so that he could try to stamp out this king who was supposed to come. And so Jesus came back after Herod had passed and and, uh, died. Jesus returned and takes up life in Nazareth, which was also predicted. Uh, And uh, just over and over again, we see that Jesus' path and destiny was planned and predicted in the Hebrew Scriptures. And uh, so many of the things were things that he himself had no power over personally, and yet they took place. It wasn't like Jesus said, okay, here's the checkoff list. Here are these 300 prophecies. Now I've got to sit about and, and one by one uh, fulfill them all. We see that some of them were beyond human uh, manipulation to fulfill, the place of his birth and other, and other things. But uh, one by one, we see Jesus fulfilling all the prophecies. He is, chapter 5, he chooses his disciples. Chapter 6, he heals on the Sabbath. He gives the, the Sermon on the Mount. Which the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, was more than just a, a Sermon on the Mount. It was, a, yes, Jesus teaching his disciples and so on, but as we've learned from our good friend Jacob and from the Hebrew perspective of of the New Testament as well, we see that this was Jesus fulfilling the messianic role of King of Israel who was to teach the Torah. He was to teach the Torah to the people of Israel. Every seven years, the king had been commanded to teach Torah, the laws of God, to the people. And so we see Jesus carrying out his royal uh, responsibilities as the king, uh, teaching in the Torah to the people in the Sermon on the Mount. A wonderful insight there that Jacob has given us over the years about the person and the work and the ministry of Jesus. Uh, in chapter 7, there's this wonderful story. I've always enjoyed it a lot about this, uh, this one that Jesus says, he said, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. Who was he talking about? 
who is this individual that had more faith and a quality of faith that Jesus himself says, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Who was that? Maybe some of you could give me a call. We'll open up with that question tonight. Who was this person that Jesus praises his faith and said he had more faith than he had seen in all of Israel? Give me a call if you'd like. All through the evening, you can give me a call answering questions, asking questions, give a comment, uh, not just simply about the Gospel of Luke. That's where we're focusing tonight. Uh, but if you have a question of, at all about the Scriptures and what it means to know God and follow God, uh, I would be glad to take your question or your comment, and uh, we can talk about all things biblical uh, here on the Bible Live broadcast. Our phone number is 210-340-9585. 210-340-9585. So we see there... In uh, chapter 7, this uh, person that God says, that Jesus himself says, has more faith than anyone. He hadn't seen any faith like that in all of Israel. And then we come tonight, we're going to pick up in chapter 8, Luke chapter 8. And uh, it's a wonderful passage, a very remarkable passage. It's one of these stories, one of these parables that Jesus tells uh, about these four types of soil. Uh, and it, it's found in uh, Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 4. It, it talks about these four kinds of soil. And I'd like for maybe you to let me know. We have the hard soil. Uh, it says hard path. Some of the seed that the, the farmer is planting lands on the hard path. Some of it lands in the shallow soil, uh, rocky rocks all through the soil and and. Uh, it uh, the hard path it just choked out. There's there, it doesn't isn't able to take root in the in, in uh, the shallow path. It begins to take, but then it, the sun comes out and dries it up and kills it. And then there's the the so, the seed that falls into the weed infested ground. You know I I like these stories. I grew up on a ranch and uh, and of course we all have to nurture and tend our lawns. So you probably you've probably experienced these four different kinds. Um, of soil here, uh, weed infested. And then there finally there was the good soil where the seed took root and grew and, and grew a great harvest. And, and uh, the, the, you know, we can, we can talk about all of that. But what I'd like for you to answer my question tonight is what does, what did the, what did the difference in the four soils, what did that represent? What, did, what was the parable of the four soils all about? It's one of the few parables that Jesus actually uh, gives a meaning of the parable. You know, he doesn't just tell the story and go on, but his disciples say, what, what, is the meat? what, what does this story mean? And Jesus said, gives them the explanation of the parable. So uh, maybe you could answer that question tonight. The first question was, uh, we talked about who is this one in Israel who was said to have more faith than Jesus had seen in all of Israel. And the second question I want you to answer for me in Luke chapter 8, what do the four soils represent? What is their lesson for us today? So let's go to our phone lines. I want to pick up uh, Paul is calling in on line one. I appreciate you, Paul, calling in, being a part of the program, and don't leave me hanging here all by myself on The Bible Live. Thanks for calling in. Are you there with me, Paul? Okay, now you're going to have to help me here. It looks like John, I hit the button. 
Is uh, Paul? Are you there with me tonight? Oh, there it is. I know you. I know what I've got to hit. I've got to hit another button here. I think. No, is that? Am I having to hit that? Are you with me, Paul? John, maybe you can. Is there something else that's supposed? To... Did I hit it? Hello. Hey, John. Uh, Paul. I'm sorry. I'm so glad you're there. I was evidently I hit the wrong button, but I'm really glad you had the patience to stay with me. Uh, what's on your mind tonight? How's everything going for you? It's going okay. I'm glad to hear that. I uh, had a good Sunday. Did you know that today, I, I didn't even know about it myself till I was well on my way to our ministry out at Lackland Air Force Base this morning. We had uh, well over 2,000 young men and women, basic trainees out at Lackland that attended our Bible study classes today. And, uh, oh, it was so wonderful to be there. But I, I heard on the way out there that this was International Women's Day, uh, you know, to celebrate and admire the role of women in our lives and around the world. I, I didn't know it. Were you aware of that? No, I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't either until I kind of heard it on, on a news story. Uh, I've got a wife and a little daughter, and I, I'm really happy about some of the liberty and freedom. You know, the Bible says there's neither male nor female, a Jew or Greek or what, that we are all the, the body of Christ, the people of God. And, and I, I kind of think that it, it's a wonderful thing. My wife can has uh, been my faithful partner in ministry over many, many years. Our daughter loves the Lord and serving the Lord. I thought it was a good, a good thing. I, I'm not particularly uh, uh, embarrassed or, you know, what I mean, uh, problem. I know that sometimes it's abused in the whole idea, but uh, I think the church, we model the oneness and harmony and, and, and relational harmony. I hope we model uh, as the people of God the respect that we can have for one another. The gender war doesn't necessarily, <laughs> except maybe in our funny stories about our marriages and all, but uh, the gender well, God war. God gave us women to help us too. Oh, yeah. We need our, our and of course, part, part of the Luke chapter 8, it, it begins with a list of the women who followed Jesus. Soon he said he took right. his 12 disciples and, and along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits right. and diseases, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna. Some of these were prominent, uh, influential women of the uh, of the world of that time of the, the society there in, in Jerusalem. And uh, it's I think it's really uh, appropriate, you know, that our our passage tonight opens with a recognition of these godly women who served and and uh, followed the Lord Jesus. But maybe that's not what was on your mind, Paul. What what were you going to ask about or comment on tonight? Well, I was going to ask uh, if this happened to Jacob. Say that again. Oh, Jacob has been with us for many, many years and uh, um, still a great uh, friend of the ministry and so on. But he just, uh, what was it, last week, John? Two weeks ago. Uh, just announced that he needs to take time out and and uh, okay. do other things with you know with coming down here with the broadcast and all. I still call on him and I still count on him if I ever get in the bind and want to get that Hebrew <laughs> perspective. He's going to hopefully come in and rescue us and speak to our passages as well. But he's not coming here on the evenings now. But I appreciate you calling and asking. I, I miss the old guy. He's my my buddy and faithful friend, and and uh, sure. I'm sure he'll. He'll be. He'll make his presence felt. I'm sure, as he did even before he came on the air with me. He started out as a caller here on the program, and we finally said, "Well, listen, he's so good. Let's have him come on with us." Paul, there's our music. We have to take time out. We're going to be back in just a moment. Don't go away, folks.
Sisters at Loop 410 and Broadway has taken care of the Dollar family, that's Suzanne and me, plus our three children, for the past 25 years. Suzanne, tell the folks about our dentist. Well, like you say, Dr. Shelton is a dentist for a lifetime. He's got the latest technology. He's busy, but I've never had to wait. And I never dread going to the dentist. In fact, he and his staff are so personable that I actually rather enjoy it. Go to DrShelton.com or call 590-7878. So praise Him for His Thy health and salvation. All ye who hear, now to His temple draw near. Join me in glad adoration. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. All right, we are back. Thank you for being with us tonight here on The Bible Live broadcast. We are visiting with Paul just before the break, so let's go back and visit with our friend Paul, and uh, we were talking a little bit about uh, Jacob and then letting you kind of catch up on the news of his departure from the live broadcast here on Sunday evenings, but we still count on him as a great friend and a supporter of the broadcast, and I bet he'll be willing to call in one of these times and answer a question, get us out of a bind, and give us a, an insight that we, he, he's been such a blessing over the years to hear that Jewish Hebrew perspective of both Old and New Testament passages, and it, it really is instructive, a great blessing. I think uh, many of our listeners, if you've ever had a a Jewish scholar, uh, someone who knows the scriptures well in your congregation, and giving that insight, uh, it is it is really wonderful how they can enrich our view as as Gentile believers and followers after the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how they can enrich our understanding of the Scriptures uh, and as we follow after uh, Jesus, Yeshua the Hamashuach. So uh, anyway, we we welcome that insight and those those helps that we have. Now let me get back to Paul. He's on the line with me still, and I think maybe there was a comment or a question, or maybe he had an answer for one of our questions. I put out a question tonight uh, about uh, what was it, Paul, that I asked about? What were the meaning of the the four kinds of soil that we find in the Gospel of Luke? And who was this individual that Jesus says, I I haven't seen faith like that in all of Israel? And those are the two questions we have out for folks to answer tonight. But let me get back to you, Paul. What's on your mind? What was your comment or thought? Or maybe you wanted to answer one of those questions for us. Well, I might be able to answer both of them. Oh, good. Great. I don't mind. I've got, you know, the, the Gospel of Luke, has, as we go through, it's got a lot of detail and a lot of questions. And so we can, I've got a lot of questions in my list here. We can get through them. But, okay, let's go with one. <laughs> let's, let's talk about this parable of the four soils. You've got the hard path. You've got the shallow, rocky soil. Then you've got the weed-infested soil and the good soil and, 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 and the, 
there's there's a contrast between these four soils. Tell me what was it that Jesus was trying to teach us with those four the parable of the four, the uh, scattering seed and the four different kinds of soil. Well, just my opinion. Uh huh. That's all right. But in those soils where the seed fell on rocky ground, the seed would sprout, and the heat would kill it. Yeah. But it was basically describing the faith of the people that heard the word and said, okay, sounds good. And then the next day, they didn't even remember what right. they'd heard. It didn't take and deep roots, right? And, and they bleed for a while, but then they fell away when they faced temptation. Sure. Yeah. Then on the different types of soil, it just progressed uh-huh. where they listened and heard and some believed, and those that believed were in the good soil. Yep. And those that didn't believe were in the weeds and the thickets. Yeah. How about the hard path? What would, how would you characterize the people, the, the seed, uh, the good news of the gospel fell on their lives? What, would, what happened to the – what was their response to the message? The hard, the that- hard path. Initially, they were kind of excited and interested in the Word, and then uh, maybe some of the scribes or Pharisees said, don't believe that old preacher out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He didn't know of anything. That's right. It looks and to so me like it's kind of like the, the bird, like if you're sowing seed in your lawn or in the backyard or whatever your garden, and some of it falls on the, on the concrete, on the, on the, on the right. sidewalk, for example. And and then and the birds, birds come and come and eat it and take it away. It, that's the, uh, the the picture that Jesus kind of gives. It. It's one of the few, uh, like I said before, parables that Jesus actually explains it for us. So you got that the birds take it, and then let's go to that last one where it says that it fell into the soil. Evidently, it was good soil, but there were weeds in it, and the weeds choked out the soil. What would that What would that be a picture of? What would that what kind of uh, human response to the gospel would that sort of characterize? I would say that it would characterize the fact that, well, I don't have, I don't really believe in that. Hmm. The the people that I, that's what I, that's what I get out of it. Yeah, and the message but, gets crowded uh, out by the cares and concerns of this life, I guess. Wow, those you know these are not just these are not just responses to the message of the gospel in terms of of salvation and trusting Christ beginning our journey with God and our relationship with God but these are responses that we can keep our eye out for even as God's children as God's people we need to take a little inventory sometimes and say am I am I responding to what God tells me am I Am I listening and, and am Amen. I paying attention? I, I, it seems like they would have Amen. a usefulness to us as as believers as well. I see my I see that in myself many times. You know, yeah. If I'm just not concentrating or just not into the word, I'm, and it's it's disappointing too. Yeah, yeah, but very disappointing. But the Lord is so good to to show us that in His grace and His patience. And and if we are willing to turn around and say, "Oh Lord, you know I've slipped into a bad pattern. I'm not responding to you. I'm not, I'm not obeying you." And and uh, 
You know, I think the Lord is gracious and good, and His Spirit works in us to change us and give us courage, and uh, I'm so glad about that. But this this parable is useful to us, not just in the terms of people's response to the gospel in terms of salvation, but I think it's good for us to think of taking an inventory every now and again. Am I trusting God? Am I, Or am I letting God's commands and God's presence being choked out by the concerns yes. of the world around me and so on. It's a it's a good, great parable. Yes. It's very picturesque and very easy for us to apply it. Well, pre- any, something else. Talk to me about this one. The, who had the greatest faith that Jesus uh, To me, this is amazing. I mean, to have the Son of God, the Messiah himself, compliment your faith and say, I haven't seen faith yeah. like this in all. Who was it that Jesus was talking about? One of the teachers, one of the Pharisees, one of the uh, no. one of his disciples. Who was this great person? It was a centurion. You're kidding! A Roman soldier, actually. A Roman soldier. <laughs> That's surprising, isn't it? <laughs> it is so surprising. <laughs> but you, you know, would... I have men under me, yeah. and I say go, and they go. Yeah. I say come, and they come. Yeah. What was the story there? What was it? He he had a servant, I believe this fellow did, that uh, was sick, sick, and he asked Jesus to come and and to heal him. He believed uh-huh. that Jesus could do that, and so yeah. he Jesus began to go with him. And they said, oh, "Don't bother now. Don't trouble yourself anymore because my servant uh, he's he's died, uh, and I'm not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word where you are." No, he hadn't, sir. He said. He's sick, but he went out and told him, don't even trouble yourself to come to my home. I'm not worthy of such an honor. Uh, Just say the word where you are, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus said, wow. that's." And and so he he said the word, and he was healed. I wonder if you remember in the book of Acts, we read about this fellow named, um, there's a Roman uh, officer there. What was his name? Um, (coughs) Um, Corinthians, or um, boy, it doesn't come to me all of a sudden. You know, I've often wondered if this might have been uh, that Roman that we read about later in the book of Acts. I think it's somewhere in chapter 15 or 16. Paul goes to his home. Um, uh, where is it? Uh, I'm trying to remember this. Do you remember the story? The, Paul uh, sees this. No. Peter, Peter sees this vision of this this sheet that comes down from heaven, and um, oh yeah, the sheet, yeah, and and, yeah. and God, and it, he it gets it has a, all kinds of different animals in it. Yes, exactly. And the it, Lord says, "Eat," and He's telling him to go down and meet with this Roman uh, officer. That is, is, that, is that Cornelius. Cornelius, that's exactly right. Sometimes I have often wondered if this. Cornelius might not have been this Roman centurion. Now, that would nowhere we're told that, but in my mind, I thought, hmm, I wonder if years later, oh. Cornelius, <laughs> I, you know, it just sort of in my mind, you know, but uh, it, it is so interesting that God, that the Lord chooses a Roman, you know, the hated Romans that are uh, occupying Israel at this time, and, and uh, a military officer. I have a lot of. I work with military personnel out at Lackland, and a lot of young trainees come and say, "Can 
can a Christian really be, can we be in the military? Can we really serve in, in war? And, and uh, it's very clear through scriptures. I, I, what do you think, Paul? Oh, it yeah. seems cl- clear to me that in the Bible, many of the great heroes of the Bible were, were men in, of of war. For me, they were soldiers. Sure. And David's a good example of that. That was a great example. And they can be men and women of faith. All they need to do is do their job honestly and don't take advantage of their authority. We're told you know, they come in and even ask John the Baptist about that. How about us? Can we follow God? And he says, yeah, just don't take advantage of your power and authority and, and um, you know, follow God's laws and, and obey God, trust in God. And it um, doesn't seem to be – they definitely could be – Honor and glorify God. They can know Him and live for God as well as as men and women in uniform. Well, thank you, Paul. I appreciate you calling. I have enjoyed a pleasant conversation with you. Thank you very much. You have a blessing today. All right. Thanks for calling in. You can do just what Paul did and uh, give us a call here, 340. Uh, what is it? <laughs> 340. Uh, 210 Give us a call and uh, be a part of the Bible Live broadcast. Let me put out a few more thoughts. The book of Luke here is just full of these stories. It moves from um, the parable of the four soils. We talked about it. It talks about uh, this, this, um, this Roman centurion who just exhibits more faith uh, than Jesus had ever seen. Now let's go on to chapter... Um, Chapter 9 of the book of Luke, we have this remarkable situation where Jesus climbs a mountain to pray, and he is transfigured. Uh, In other words, we see him not simply in his role as uh, the man of faith, uh, the Messiah, but he is transfigured there on on the uh, mount, and uh, he is presented in all his glory uh, and the beauty of his of his uh, person as the Messiah, as the Redeemer, as the Son of God. And uh, there are some people. How many people uh, ha- saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? That's in uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 28. How many people saw Jesus when he was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration? That's a question I'd love for you to call in and answer for me, if you can. Let me me grab another pen here so I can keep note of my questions to you. If you can answer that question, give me a call, 210-340-9585. How many people saw the transfigured Jesus of Nazareth um, when he was uh, shown in his glory, in the brightness uh, of his glory? So answer that question. And there's another um, question here. Uh, this is a hard question. In chapter 11 of the of the Gospel of Luke, uh, there's a passage that says, the uh, um, well, let me read it. Luke chapter 11. Now, this is a little bit of a difficult passage for some of you. Uh, maybe you, uh, some of you older, more mature, and, and, and uh, have studied the word deeper. Jesus is speaking, and he says again, No one lights a lamp and then hides the lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where its light can be seen by all who enter the house. And then comes this passage. Listen to this. 
Your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when it is bad, your body is filled with darkness. Make sure that the light you think you have is not actually darkness. If you are filled with light with no dark corners, then your whole life will be radiant as though a floodlight was shining uh, for filling you with light. So this is a it's it's a little bit of a confusing picture that we have here. So what is Jesus actually telling this? It says, your eye is a light that provides light for your body. When your light is eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when it is bad, your body is filled with darkness. It's found in Luke chapter 11. Make sure that the light within you is is not actually darkness because if you're filled with light no with no dark corners then your whole life will be radiant what is the lesson what is this light uh the lamp I mean, he talks about uh our the, your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body what is what is jesus teaching us with this uh comparison uh, about the light of our eye and our body and and this other light within us. What is that other light? Let me know what you think from Luke chapter 11. Maybe you, that's a little harder question, the other one. Uh, but the other one we have out is how many people witnessed Jesus when he was tr- on the Mount of Transfiguration? Uh, we're told about that experience in, uh, let me see, chapter 9, verse 28. Very interestingly, I don't know if this is the uh, gospel where we're uh, we're told this story about Jesus. Uh, yes, it is in in Luke chapter nine. Jesus begins to tell his his disciples. Listen to this; it's very interesting. You see, the people of Israel of that era, one of the eras of the short sightedness that they have come to understand and think was that that uh, many of the people. That was to believe that the Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come, and He's going to free us from Roman domination, and He's going to be a great, um, maybe a, a great military liberator, and He's going to come and overcome Rome and and throw them out of Israel and, and restore us as a nation. And uh, Jesus, you know, knows that He understands that. Uh, but he warned his disciples, and he said this, Remember, the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the leaders of re- teachers of religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day he will be raised from the dead. So Jesus begins to predict the other side of this this picture of the Messiah that is drawn for us in the Old Testament passages. Uh, take I, Isaiah, take Zechariah, all of the Old Testament passages, there, there are these these different visions of the Messiah, one of them as a conquering king, liberator, and another as a a suffering servant, one who would suffer, that would take upon himself our uh, the stripes. It said, "Our, you know, the uh, all we like sheep have gone astray, but God will lay upon him the iniquity of his all, uh, and with his stripes we are healed." So we have this this conflicting vision of a suffering servant, uh, and and Jesus points it out very clearly to them, and he says that. Uh, uh, you know, who do you people say that I am? And they say, some of you say you're John, uh, some of you say Elijah and others. And so he, he points and he begins to tell them, predicting his suffering and his death. 
And he says, uh, any of you that want to follow after me, uh, you need to be willing to take up your cross and follow me. What did that mean? Uh, you know, was that just a pretty, uh, a hyper, you know, hyperbole, just exaggeration for, for his sake? Was Jesus talking about taking up your cross? What did he mean by that? What does it mean to take up your cross and follow Jesus? And then he says that uh, if anyone uh, uh, is ashamed of me at my message, the Son of God will be ashamed of that person when he returns in glory. That's a powerful message right there. Uh, a lot of people take lightly the, the claims of Jesus to be the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior of the world. And they say, oh, I'll just wait around, and, and if Jesus comes back, then I'll ask him, well, is this the first time you've been here? And we'll just kind of joke and laugh about it, that it's it's all lightly taken. But but Jesus says, no, you know, uh, there's something serious about his claims, that if you honor me and you trust me and obey me, uh, I will honor and trust and, and, and uh, confirm you before the Father. But if you reject me before men, I will I will reject you as well before the Father. I mean, there's some serious passage going on here. There's some serious message that we t- need to understand clearly that the, the claims of Jesus to be the Messiah are not to just be dismissed and take light, taken lightly. There's three three ways we can... We don't either. Either we say, "I don't believe it." I don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and and that decision and has consequences. We're told very clearly have consequences. Uh, there's another decision saying, "Well, I don't know. I don't. I don't. We don't have enough information." I. <coughs> and so, <coughs> we look at the claims of Christ. <coughs> to be the Messiah, and we examine them, and we have to decide, you know, uh, is, it, is it true? Uh, and and uh, there's a great teacher from the last century, C.S. Lewis, a, a British convert, to began to follow Jesus. He, he grew up as agnostic, atheistic, and then as an adult, as a, as a brilliant, brilliant professor at Cambridge University, uh, he came to faith in Christ, and he wrote what is called the Trilemma. And he said that Jesus claimed, clearly claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the Son of God himself, the God himself incarnate. Uh, and uh, there's no, there could be no denying that. Jesus, some people say, well, actually Jesus never claimed to be God. It was his disciples. It was his followers that did. And that just simply is not the truth. Jesus claimed very clearly uh, to the Samaritan woman. He claimed uh, to Thomas, his disciples, that he was indeed the Son of God. The, the 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 Son of God incarnate, He and the Father are one. That uh, uh, Thomas, one of His disciples, saw Him after His resurrection, uh, saw Him resurrected, you know, the wounds in His hands and the sword wound in His side. And he says, and His response was, "My Lord and my God." And Jesus didn't say, "Oh no, Thomas, you're wrong. Don't say that. That's that's sacrilege to call me God." He he said, "You know, blessed are you, Thomas, for you have seen and you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe." The, so there was no getting around the fact Jesus Himself very clearly and consistently claimed to be the the God incarnate, the Son of God, and His followers did as well. And so, as C.S. Lewis said uh, in his brilliant uh, article about uh, Jesus' claims, he said he could, he was the, either a liar, a lunatic, or he was the Lord. He Jesus did claim to be God, 
and uh, and it was either true or it was false. There could be no in-between. Either he was indeed uh, the Son of God incarnate, uh, having taken on flesh to come and carry out the role of the man, of perfect man of faith, walking by faith and trust and obedience and submission to the God the Father to be our Messiah, our Redeemer, or, or he was not. So Jesus claimed to be the God. He was either... It was either true or it was not true. It couldn't be one. It couldn't be part one and part the other. So it was either true or or false. Now let's go for a moment and say that it was false. Jesus claimed to be the redeemer, the savior of the world, but he it was false. It was not true. Uh, it was a lie uh, uh, or a deception. Well, in that case, Jesus either knew it was a lie. He claimed to be God. But he, he knew that it was false. Let's take that example. Well, then I don't care what else we might say about Jesus. You know, he was a good man, a great teacher, but he lied. There was a, an, an, an intentional deception at the root of his claims to be the Messiah. He intentionally deceived people. Uh, and in that case, that's a liar. That's what we call a liar. Uh, and so here we have Jesus, uh, no matter how much we might say about how good a man, a great teacher and this at the great, at the at the base, at the bottom of all of his claims was the fact that he, he was intentionally deceiving. He was a liar. Okay. Well, that, let's examine the life and the character of Jesus of Nazareth. Was it, does it, was it really consistent with what we see in his life that he was a liar? Uh, and I, I don't think there's any way that you would study his life and his integrity, uh, his compassion for others, and his purity, his insistence on purity, that we would call him a liar. And so let's take the other option. Jesus claimed to be God, but he was not God. He, but we're not going to say he was a liar. We, we, we're going to say, well, he was deceived. He didn't. He didn't know that he was wrong. He thought he was God, but he wasn't. So let's come back after the break, and we'll talk about that particular case as well in this trilemma uh, of Jesus the Messiah. Was he a liar? Was he a lunatic? Or was he the Lord? We'll come back right after these messages. Don't go away. This is The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. about to go down so we're looking out for those frowns and we spreading the love and joy there is plenty more to go round because i'm hjbby because this joy i feel inside is exploding unfolding at this moment i want to fly but he's care love without measure no cracking under the pressure i've got this place by sovereign grace and now this gift is my treasure my pleasure to let you know that my jesus makes me feel this way for this i give you praise because you make me happy you're listening to the Bible live with soapy dollar you make me happy all right very good. We are back. The Lord fills our lives with happiness, with pleasure. You know, I, I recently meditated on that passage. At your right hand, O oh Lord, there are pleasures forevermore. And uh, I found it encouraging. 
not to be satisfied with the empty, shallow pleasures of this world that we look for and uh, everybody's chasing after, but to be more content and happy and, and pleased and genuinely pleased with the pleasure that come from our God. And I found that encouraging. It helped me to reject, you know, some temptations that for the take the 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 cheap pleasure that the world offers and and, uh instead of doing that i I, i'm being content with that i want to the the deep satisfying pleasures that come from god through our walk and our obedience and our faith and trust in him Uh, that's a great great uh truth i think it really was encouraging to me at least in a practical way well we're back to the gospel of luke and i don't want to uh use too much of our time let's get into some of these passages. We've talked about the centurion. We've talked about, uh, I want to answer a question here for you. Some of you may be wondering what, how many people were on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured and when he revealed, he was revealed in all of his glory. Most of you would have said three, I think. Remember that Jesus went up uh, on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, three of his closest disciples. And he went with them, but but don't forget Moses and Elijah. Remember, they appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they were there as well. So actually, there were five who who saw the uh, Jesus revealed and transfigured in His glory. So uh, a little bit of a trick question for you the, for you here on the Bible Live. And what I was going to point out is there, you see that passage in chapter nine uh, of Luke. And Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he tells he predicts his his uh, uh, that he's going to be uh, turned into the authorities. He's going to be uh, killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. And he tells them, uh, "If you're going to be my follower, you must, follower, you must not live for yourself. Uh, turn from your selfish ways. You take up your cross and follow me." And this gives a meaning to that phrase that we see in the New Testament as well, that we must die to ourselves. If we try to hang on to our own lives and our own selfish purposes in living living for self, we would, we would lose life. If we try to hang on to it, we'll lose it. But if we give it away and live our lives for God and, uh, and uh, take up our cross and die to our own selfish desires and own selfish understanding and views, but live for him and his purposes, then it says that uh, we will live, we will experience his glory. When, he, when the king returns, we'll experience, experience his glory and his salvation. Now, uh, then he ends that little passage, that little sermon there he gives to his followers. He says, I tell you the truth, some of you standing here right now are not going to die before you see the kingdom of God revealed in that way. Because he talks about the Son of God returning in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. And he says, some of you right here, you're not you're not going to see death. Uh, you're going to see the Son of God uh, in his glory. And it says about eight days later, after that promise to them, he takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, his appearance of his face was transformed. His clothes became dazzling white. And suddenly two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking, communing with Jesus. And they were glorious to see. 
So we see Jesus revealed in his glory, transformed and transfigured before them. And so we see that that very thing that Jesus said was going to take place in verse 27. I tell you the truth that some of you here now, you're not going to experience death before you see uh, the Son of Man transfigured. You see the kingdom of God uh, and you see me transfigured in my glory. And they, and so there you go. There was the uh, fulfillment of that promise, that prediction that Jesus made there in the transfiguration. Now let's go quickly to another uh, theme. Let me ask you, I ask you the question about what is this light eyes, the eyes that guide us through a room are compared to what in uh, our life? Remember Jesus says that, you know, the light that you have, uh, if you, the light in your eye guides your body. And so what he's saying is that your true motivation, your, your true heart motivation is going to guide your, your soul and your spirit in the same way that if your heart is right and your eye is good and it, it keeps you from stubbing your toe during the night uh, as you get up to walk through the bedroom and you stub your toe and, oh, it's terrible, nothing more painful. He says, now, in the same way, a right motivation, if your heart is right and your motives are right, then that light will guard you and protect you as well. Uh, that's uh, that's what I think of that passage, at least that we're looking about, looking at in chapter eleven, verse thirty-three. The light within is our true beliefs, our motives uh, that we make uh, our decisions based on our true motives, and uh, that's important. God is interested not in just our behavior, what we do or don't do. The Christian life is not simply about. Uh, keeping the rules and checking off all the Ten Commandments, all the commandments of God, one after the other. Fact is, none of us can do that. We can't keep the laws of God. It's impossible. No human being has ever done that except Jesus, the Messiah. And it's through his forgiveness and his working in our life. We are forgiven. We have that forgiveness. We're cleansed. We're perfect in God's sight because we are imputed the righteousness of Christ. We're clothed in the righteousness of the Messiah himself. But um, but our motivation, uh, God is working within us, and by His Spirit, He is transforming us. And we see that picked up again in chapter 12 of the book of Luke. Uh, we, Jesus talks about an unforgivable sin. What is the sin that can be never never be forgiven? And it's related to that other passage about the light within, our true motives and our beliefs, uh, That and that is that... Uh, the unforgivable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In other words, God has a redemptive plan. God has made a plan of salvation for our lives. And it's through the work, the atoning work of the Messiah, the Savior, uh, Jesus the Messiah, who, who um, after he had lived a perfect life of faith and trust and obedience, submission to the Father, and totally walked by faith and obedience to the Father, then he who knew no sin became sin for us. That is the redemptive plan of God. That the soul uh, that that's substitutionary atonement that we saw all through the Old Testament, as John the Baptist say, Jesus was the Lamb of God who now takes away the sins of the world. And so what is the unforgivable sin, and what is this? It's called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now let's tie these things together. 
What is the Holy Spirit doing? What Jesus said afterwards he died, the Holy Spirit would come to his followers. And, and he talks about the Holy Spirit in the book of John, the Gospel of John. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he said, The Spirit of God is the agent of the new birth. That's part of what the, the, the Holy Spirit does is he shows us our need for a Savior. All of us, uh, Jew and Gentile, all of us, he shows us that uh, we are sinful, and because of our sin, we've been separated from God. The, the, the soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin, we're told in the New Testament, the wages of sin is death, spiritual separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So... Uh, what would be this unforgivable sin? Well, if the Holy Spirit is the agent of the new birth, he's the one that shows us our need for a Savior, for our need for grace, our need for forgiveness of God for our sins, he brings us to that place and shows us that, that God has indeed forgiven us and God has uh, revealed his holiness and his righteousness. Uh, it, it isn't God just kind of willy-nilly said, oh, I'm going to forgive you and I'm not going to forgive God has... His holiness and justice, his righteousness had to be uh, satisfied just as his love had to be expressed and satisfied. And that all came together in the person of the Messiah. Uh, Jesus' death on the cross was the perfect expression of both God's righteousness and his justice, uh, that the soul that sins, that sin had to be judged uh, and condemned and had to be judged and, and punished. And uh, and so the cross of Jesus was the expression of God's holiness and his righteousness, his justice, but at the same time, uh, the, it was an expression of his love and his forgiveness because they, they met together in the cross of Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit presents us our need for the Savior and shows us our need for the, sa- the Redeemer, the Lamb of God, the Jesus as our Savior. And if we reject the work of the Holy Spirit, that is blasphemy against the Spirit. We are rejecting uh, the, the calling of the Holy Spirit to trust in God and God's redemptive plan and God's the Savior that God has sent. And if we reject that salvation, if we reject the Redeemer, the Savior, then we have rejected uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. Because as Jesus said, it's the Holy Spirit who calls us, who shows us a need for a Savior, and is the agent of the new birth when we place our faith and trust in Jesus the Messiah. So uh, the, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the only unforgivable sin because we are forgiving the means of, of forgiveness. We are being forgiving the means that God has created to enable us to be forgiven and through the work, the atoning work of the Messiah. I hope that makes sense to you. Uh, it, it is very consistent and very logical as we understand uh, this sin against the Holy Spirit, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that is the unforgivable sin because we are rejecting the, the basis for our forgiveness. We're rejecting the means of our forgiveness that the Holy Spirit shows us, so therefore it, it, it is unforgivable. There is no other provision for man's sin except there is no, uh, there, no other provision that God has given for us to be forgiven uh, except through Jesus the Messiah. And so if we reject uh, the work of the Spirit as he reveals us that to us, we uh, have committed that unforgivable sin. There's no other provision that God has given for us to be forgiven. So... Um, 
There we go to reject salvation. Let's go on to another passage quickly as we can. Uh, I said that Jesus says that take up your cross and follow him means to die to ourself, uh, to our own self-effort and our own self-worship and adulation and, and depending on our wisdom and self that we must die and live for him, for our God and trust in him. Live for him and trust in him above uh, even our own desires for selfishness and selfish desires. Uh, let's see here. There's a sheep, a coin, and a son in Luke chapter 15. We have Jesus telling the story. He tells three stories. One is about a sheep. One is about a coin. And one is about a, a boy, a son. Uh, there are these three stories. What do these three things have in common? The sheep, a coin, and a son. And what do they have in common? Do you know what it is? Uh, all three of them got lost. Uh, there was a lost sheep, uh, and that Jesus left the ninety and nine and went out and found that lost sheep. I often feel like that lost sheep. It, that uh, being an orphan son and abandoned by at birth and passed around to 15 families before I was six years old and put into an orphanage, a home for homeless and delinquent boys and uh, no importance at all in human terms. And yet it says that Jesus left the 90 and 9 and he went and he found me, this young, insignificant little kid, and he expressed the love of God for my life and, and found me and brought me to himself. What, you know, I've always thought of that as a beautiful picture of God, the way he found each and every one of us when we were lost. And uh, <coughs> we could have been down and outers, excuse me, or we could be up and outers, but we're lost. And and God came and found us. And uh, don't you marvel at the way God found you in his grace and his mercy and brought you to himself? Uh, then there's a coin. This woman has this coin uh, that was represented her when they're married. They receive these coins and that were precious to them that represented their home and their family, their marriage. And she lost one of the coins from her, her necklace or uh, uh, went around her head uh, on her forehead. And so she she emptied the house. She cleaned out all of her furniture and she swept and cleaned out. I, I remember one time my wife lost her wedding ring. And boy, we were panicking. We looked everywhere. We looked for weeks and and finally t- turning everything over and we found it. And how great was our joy when we found that ring, just like the this woman who found this lost coin. And then finally, there's this man who has a son. Billy Graham uh, talked about this many times in his sermons about this lost son. Uh, we call it the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And uh, he was lost and and, and the father, um, he took his inheritance and he wasted it on, on, on just terrible living and, and pursuing the passions and the pleasures of the earth. And finally came to himself, he said. And I'm, I, even the servants at my father's farm, they live better than I do. They're not starving. And I'm going to go and I'm going to ask my father to take me back, not to be his son, but even to be a servant in his home. And he goes and, and remember the story, how his father was looking for him and welcomed him back with open arms and and uh, allowed him not only to be his son, but also to be, again, a servant in his kingdom, in his home. 
And and remember, there are two sons. There are two lost sons, actually, we see in the prodigal son. Uh, it wasn't just one. The older brother was also prodigal. He stayed. He didn't go off and waste his father's inheritance, but he wasn't living. He wasn't experiencing uh, the joy of his father and the pleasure of that relationship with his father at all, even though he was staying at home. And you see that sometimes... Uh, um, you know, it's not enough just to be in the church pew and going to church. Uh, do you have that wonderful, satisfying, confident, secure relationship with the Father? And it doesn't matter if you're out there uh, away from the church, away from God, and, and wasting your life uh, openly. What we consider is open sin against God. That could be your case. Or you could be right there in the church. You know, you could be there and, and going and trying to build up your your, your um, get more clients for your business and just trying to put on a good show for the world and uh, or, or just sincerely there seeking but you haven't come into that confident, secure relationship with God the Father. And so we can see there could be two kinds, two lost sons there. You could be a prodigal in two different ways. And uh, hopefully you're not at all a prodigal. You've come to faith in Christ, and you've come into that confident, secure relationship with God through the Messiah. Uh, that's the, pro- the parable of the lost, uh, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and in the prodigal son. Now then, let's see here. Let me ask you another question. There's so many good stories. Uh, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, this is a story that Jesus tells. He doesn't really say it's a parable. Uh, we don't know if this was actually just a parable or or this was actually uh, his understanding of a, a rich man and, and a poor Lazarus. <coughs> Excuse me. So we have this story of Lazarus and the rich man, and the rich man he goes uh, doesn't go to be with God, uh, but he is separated from God. And 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 when the when the rich man says, "Well, uh, please don't send Abraham back to my uh, send Lazarus back to my brothers, my families, and warn them not to come to this place, not to come under God's judgment." And to trust in you and trust God. What does God? What does Abraham tell the rich man? He says, "You know, they have the witness of Moses and the prophets, and and they have. Even if I were to send someone back from the dead, they they would have that witness. They they have what the witness of God. They have sufficient light to believe and trust in God." And so, uh, you know, we could take that's a good warning for us as well. I had a young man tell me one time, if God would just send, if Jesus would come and appear before me right now and and talk to me, then I would believe in him. And, you know, uh, that's not necessarily true. Jesus came and believed and appeared before others that did not believe in him. And uh, that's not necessarily true. We have all the evidence we need. We have plenty of witness and evidence that God has indeed sent his son into the world. He took upon him our sins, and he conquered death, hell, and the grave. And he is God's redeemer, and he is God's plan of redemption for us. And uh, it didn't, you know, we... You have all the evidence is there, and uh, many others have believed that evidence, have trusted in God and Jesus and salvation, and they have suffered persecution. Some have even gone to their death because of their faith in Christ. And so, uh, you know, if 
if you're not able to b- receive the evidence and the, and the witness that God has already given us, and you're not willing, then then uh, the consequences of that decision will fall upon us. That's what we're told in the scriptures. I'm not trying to be legalistic and judgmental myself. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't think that I can judge anybody else myself. Uh, I can know about my own relationship with God. I can I have confidence, a secure relationship with God myself, but I can't judge your relationship. What I can tell you is that God clearly offers to us a confident and secure relationship with himself through Jesus. You can know, you have cert- you can have certainty and, and confidence in your relationship with God because of who Jesus was, what he accomplished, and what he tells us, what he promises us in his word. So I can tell you that good news, but once you reject that, I, I don't know. All bets are off at that point. I, I, you know, I don't know your heart. I can not look down into your the depths of your soul to see. You know, uh, it's possible. I know that being Native American, a Mescalero Apache from the the uh, Apache tribe down in southern New Mexico, that I know that there were, you know, 500, 600, 800 years ago on this continent, there were many, uh, many women from my ancestors that. That they knew about God, they knew about nature, they knew about the sun, the moon, the stars, the seasons, and and, and God revealed and something of Himself to them. If they responded in faith and longing and trust in God and seeking God with the light they received, we're told in the Book of Romans that that uh, as they re, uh, they they responded with faith and longing with, to the light of God gave them that God applied the full work of redemption and salvation to their life. And God was faithful to bring more light uh, to them and to us. And I've seen that happen many times over a 50-year career on the mission field, how God brings me. Sometimes he brought me to people that had loved God and wanted God, but they didn't have the full light of the gospel. They didn't know. And God brought me to be with them over in Mongolia and over in Kazakhstan and other parts of the world where they'd never heard the name of Jesus and the witness of the gospel, but they loved God and wanted God. I even had one man say, all my life I've searched for God, uh, and, and yet tonight I have finally met him and learned that his name is Jesus. And so there's that, that book of Romans coming true for us uh, as well. So it's taught in uh, the Gospel of Luke. We see so many wonderful stories that we don't have time to go through them all. We have the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man of Zacchaeus, who, a tax collector who repented of his sin and was saved. And he showed evidence of his changed life as he uh, he uh, committed half of his wealth to the poor and paid back overcharged taxes four times. Uh, those were evidences of his salvation. He really showed that his life had changed. Oh, there's so much. The parable of the talents is one that we could all uh, appreciate uh, that shows that it's really one of those parables that show that uh, that what he's talking about is not money. It's talking about the gospel. Certain people have given a, a great amount of knowledge of God in the gospel. And they are responsible. To whom much is given, much is required. But some people haven't received as much as others. But if they respond to what they've received, they are rewarded uh, and, and encouraged by God and blessed by God. But if you don't apply, if you don't respond to the revelation that God has given you, then we're told, in fact, that what we have received will be taken away and that we will be cast into outer darkness and judgment. 
Don't go away, folks. Be with us next Sunday night for more on The Bible Live. Thanks for joining me tonight. Mailing address is P.O. Box 18888. That's Box 18888. San Antonio, Texas, 78218. Hear the entire Bible every year on The Bible Live, weeknights at 930 on this great station. Then join Soapy every Sunday evening at 9 o'clock for fun, inspiration, and valuable prizes on The The Bible Bible Live Quiz Show. Show. Visit our website, BibleLive.com. That's BibleLive.com for more information about Soapy and the Bible Live broadcast. You may also order materials at the website and make tax-deductible donations to help minister to our military personnel and broadcast the entire Bible every year to America and the world.